You don't manage money. You manage your choices around money. And the reason that that is important is because your relationship with money is one of the longest relationships that you will have. And if you think about any of the relationships that are of importance to you, of significance to you, and that have been around for a really long time, those relationships have evolved and they ebb and flow. And the same is true when it comes to your money. So don't expect it to be static. Don't expect to have the same answer to a question that you should be asking all the time, which is, what should I do with my money? But recognize that as that relationship evolves, as you are hopefully finding new answers to that question, the thing that will give you hopefully some comfort is remembering that you don't manage money, but you manage your choices. And no matter what the circumstances, you can always find something that will allow you to operate from your power of choice. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hey, and welcome back everyone to another episode of Women Today. I am so excited to be introducing today's guest to you all. But before I do, I wanna just give you a quick reminder that it is the last couple of days of the March giveaway that I'm doing. So as a reminder, or if you're hearing it for the first time, this month in March, we're focusing on the topic of women and money. And if you submit a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts for the Women Today podcast, and you snap a picture, a screenshot of that review, and email it to emma at emmatitle.com along with your mailing address, I will be putting a big bundle of amazing books, my favorite women and money books, in the mail as a gift to you in appreciation for you taking just a moment of your time to write a reading and a review. So if you've been thinking about it, now is the time. Jump off the fence and do it before April 1st, and you will be getting an awesome gift and bundle of books in the mail. So please take the time. It just takes a moment. And that reading and the review makes all the difference for other women just like you and different than you who are looking for this kind of inspiration, information, and guidance. And every single reading and review that the podcast gets helps them to be able to find it better. So thank you so much in advance. All right, today we have an incredibly special guest to wrap up this month's theme of women and money, which I have been loving so much. It's just so enlivening, energizing, exciting, powerful for me to talk about this subject with all of these incredible women. So today we have Jaquette M. Timmons, and Jaquette focuses on the human side of money. She works as a financial behaviorist and is committed to getting you to see that you don't manage your money, you manage your choices around money. Jaquette is the author of Financial Intimacy, How to Create a Healthy Relationship with Your Money and Your Mate. She's a frequent blogger, the creator of The Comfort Circle, which is a dinner series where she hosts discussions about money, business, and life over food and wine, as well as pricing made human. And as soon as this pandemic is over, I cannot wait. I really would love to be a guest at one of The Comfort Circle dinners. Jaquette is also the host of the podcast, More Than Money, which I highly recommend. I've listened to several episodes and it is super engaging and educational. 
When she's not providing behavioral-based financial coaching, Jaquette is traveling the country for speaking engagements on behalf of Fortune 100 companies, AM Law 200 firms, nationally known nonprofits, and conferences to talk about the intersection of emotions and money. Her work has been featured on Minnesota Public Radio, Sirius XM, Good Morning America, Oprah.com, CNN, HLN, Fox, Black Enterprise, NPR, Reuters.com, and The Wall Street Journal. Jaquette lives in Brooklyn, New York, and can be seen running in Prospect Park most days of the week. This interview lit me up. We cover so many things from where to start in terms of fulfilling our financial desires and vision. We hear about Jaquette's personal story and how she came to do the work that she does. We laughed. We talked about her thoughts on the bigger economy and the potential stock market crash that a lot of people have been talking about. We talk about the opportunity that's on the table as we all sort of start to crawl out of the pandemic that we've been living through the last year. We hit on so many topics, and Jaquette is a wealth of information. She is funny. She is incredibly wise. And one of the things I love most about this interview is how she simplifies and streamlines what it is that we can be doing with our money lives as women. So this is a breath of fresh air, and I know you're going to love this as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. All right, enjoy. And next week, I'll be back introducing a brand new theme for us on the podcast for the month of April. I can't wait. And until then, take really good care of yourself and the ones you love. Jaquette, welcome. I'm so, so excited to have you on the Women Today podcast. And I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. It's really my pleasure and my honor. And I know we have so many good things to talk about today. Money. (laughs) Money. Money. I mean, what could be bad talking about money? (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, you know, the audience and the listeners, they got to hear about your professional background and bio. And I know we're going to get deep into a lot of topics, but I always love to start with the personal. And so I'm wondering if you can just start us off by telling us a little bit about your personal journey and how you ended up focusing your career in money. Well, it was not intentional. (laughs) So I think that's an important piece to know. Um, I was really, really fortunate enough to have a mentor and she brought me to Wall Street. She brought me to Wall Street just a few months after graduating undergrad. And I got there and I fell in love. But here's when I really fell in love with it. It's going to sound crazy as I'll get out, but I fell in love with it in 1987 the stock market crash of 1987. Wow. And here's why. I saw up close and personal that momentous day. And for those that don't know the history, that was the second largest crash after 1933. And so I saw people who, if they could have, because of the amount of money that they lost for themselves and for their clients, if they could have, they would have jumped out of a window. And yet there were other people who were really, really calm. And I was fascinated by that. I was just like, okay, this one event happened, but there's a group of people over here that are reacting this way about it. There's another group of people over here reacting differently. A, why? And B, why are they not talking to one another? And so I didn't have the language back then to understand that that was really behavioral finance playing out, but that was the day for me that the seed was planted. Amplify that with my time in the private bank, managing money for high net worth individuals and really coming to understand that, yes, they've got a couple of more zeros and commas behind those zeros than my family did growing up. And yet, They had the same kinds of questions that I know my mother had, the same challenges, the same frustrations, the same desires, perhaps, yes, on different scales. But at the end of the day, the root of it was the same. And I just became really interested in wanting to better understand, A, the different reactions, and then also, why is it as a culture that we have this notion that people who are rich and wealthy don't have, quote unquote, money problems? 
And then also, why is there this cultural tendency to think that people who were on the lower end of the you know, spectrum don't know how to manage their money? Because my mother was excellent at managing money. So, you know, I didn't know it initially, but those were the things that really kind of shaped my desire to want to know more about behavioral finance and behavioral economics. And I went for my MBA for finance, not just dedicated to that, but that was really the desire to want to understand a little bit more. Ah, I love all of this. I have so many follow-up questions here. So first of all, can we talk about your mentor a little bit? Who was this person? How did she become your mentor? And why why did she take you to Wall Street? So really interesting story. I I went to undergrad at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, because my whole intent when I when I was in high school was I wanted to be a shoe designer. And so that's the school I applied to because that was the best design school. (laughs) And I worked all through school and I was working at Bloomingdale's, but I was working behind the Clinique counter and I was secretly shocked. For anybody that doesn't know, that's when, you know, people are shopping you to see how well you do (laughs) and you don't know that they're not real customers. And she was- I've never heard of this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a secret shopper and, and their whole point is to see, you know, how well you do your job as a salesperson and, you know, whether you are attentive and all those things. And she was my secret shopper. And, um, you know, we started having a conversation and she was like, oh, so what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm in my last year of undergrad and I don't even know how we got on this conversation. But I said, you know, I, I, I want to go for my master's, but not right now. And she said, oh, well, you know, why don't you come and talk to me um, on Monday? And then that's when she revealed that she was the head of human resources for all of Estee Lauder companies. And Estee Lauder owned Estee Lauder, Clinique. Aramis and Prescriptives. Some of those companies don't even exist today. This is going back into uh, 1986. And so I did. And uh, yeah, she offered me a job and I had a job before I even graduated and I was working with her. And um, so a couple of things about that. One, I had never thought of going into human resources, but I was like, hey, this woman sees something. I don't know exactly what, but she sees something. I'm going to go for it. And then a couple of months later, she said, all right, well, I'm going to Bankers Trust and you're going with me. And this is how naive I was. (laughs) Bankers Trust spelled its name B-A-N-K-E-R-S, Trust. And I'm like, well, where's the apostrophe? Because (laughs) isn't it supposed to be possessive? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking in my head right now. (laughs) So that gives you a sense of like really how naive I was. A career on on Wall Street was never, ever my aspiration. But I got there. I fell in love. I, I, I fell in love with the idea of money being just like any other product. You've got to do research. You've got to figure out what it is you need to create for whom and how do you get it in their hands. So the end product is different, but the process that you go toward developing it is very much the same. And, you know, that's really what got me interested in Wall Street in general. And then the behavioral finance piece just kind of evolved over time. Wow. Okay. So you, so you got this exposure, you had the serendipitous experience meeting your mentor, being guided. Sounds like you totally fell in love with money right out the gate. And and then how, and so you're managing private wealth at a, was it at a bank or a firm? Well, Bankers Trust is, is well, it, it's no longer, it's, it was acquired by Deutsche Bank, but it was not your commercial bank. So you would never see a Bankers Trust branch on the street. It was only, um, we call it a merchant bank. So we only had institutional clients and high net worth individuals. Okay. So then how did you make the transition into what you do now? So um, I left Bankers Trust after being there just a few months shy of 10 years. And I started my own firm. And it was to do the exact same thing that I had been doing at Bankers Trust, which was to manage money for high net worth individuals and also smaller foundations. So I'm doing that. And uh, four years into it, I just hit a roadblock. I, I wasn't making as much money as I had been at BT. I didn't have as much under management as I thought I would have. 
And yet every single time I was like, all right, I'm just going to close up shop and go in-house. I'd get one more client. And if you know anything about how the asset management world works, especially the way that I managed it, is you get paid a quarter in arrears. So first of all, you get paid based upon assets under management and, and how those assets are growing or not. And then, you know, whatever the market value of that account or those several accounts were, say, for example, December 31st, you get paid in January. So I was at this inflection point, but every single time I had the idea of I'm going to close up shop and go someplace else, I'd get one more client or two more clients. And it was enough to get me through another quarter or the next six months. And I had just gotten to a point where I was like, I do not know what the heck to do. And so I went to a coach and I am asking, you know, either help me figure out what it is that I'm doing that I need to stop doing or what it is that I need to start that I am not. And his question was, why are you trying to force this to work? And so here's what makes that an interesting question. I started my business in 1995. In 1996, I did my first speaking engagement and it was for a national nonprofit. And every year after that, I kept getting referral after referral after referral for speaking engagements, so much so that I always use this example just to kind of really highlight how, how much I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so AT&T hires me to go and do financial workshops for their Caribbean-based employees. So I'm in the Caribbean having a ball, working in the morning and hanging out in the afternoon, right? <laughs> I come back, I have another session with my coach. It's just like, I don't really understand what's wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But the point there being um, is I did not recognize. The thing that he was trying to get me to see is here you are over here trying to get people to work with you in this one capacity, but you're not paying attention to the fact that people are coming to you in another capacity. So once I got over my own ego of, I want to be a money manager and just kind of, you know, was more open to what was organically happening. And I went and I looked at the numbers, I was blown away because in that year that he and I are having this conversation, which is around 2000, um, I realized that 80% of my revenue is coming from speaking. And so here I was thinking the speaking was supplementing the investment management because I'm loving traveling across the country and in this instance to the Caribbean um, and, you know, doing these speaking engagements about money. Here I am thinking that that's supplementing the investment management and it was actually the reverse. So that was my clue that was just like, all right, God, I get it. <laughs> this is the direction in which I'm supposed to flow and move. And so, you know, it, it then this became a process of figuring out, all right, well, what do I need to do to streamline this and, and um, be more strategic about it? And so that was a process. And then what ended up happening is at the end of a lot of speaking engagements, people were like, well, we want to work with you. And I'm like, but I don't manage money any longer. And they're like, yeah, that's why we want to work with you. And I was like, oh, oh yes. <laughs> okay. This is making so much sense. Yep. They're like, that's why we want to work with you. And so I'm like, ah, all righty. So then it started to, you know, really kind of flush out where one pillar of my business is being a for hire speaker. And then another pillar of my business is working with people one-on-one -on -one as their coach when it comes to finances. And that has since evolved to really focusing more on working with entrepreneurs and small business owners. I, okay. I'm like jumping on my seat about so many parts of this. First of all, thank you for sharing this. And I, I just want to pull something out for the listener here, because this way of how you describe, it's like, it was, you were, you were not seeing what was right under your nose and how common that is for us as women, that it's like, we might be really swimming upstream or like 
pushing a giant snowball up the hill, like climbing. It's so hard. There's so much friction. There's so much resistance. And, and that willingness you had to get the help, get the coach and expand the, the horizon so you could see, wait, actually there's this whole flow and financial abundance coming from this other area. And so I want to encourage the listener to think about where that might be going on in your life, whether it's financially or otherwise, like where you may be resisting who you actually are and therefore causing a lot more pain and struggle than is necessary in life. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Because here's the thing. It's not like I didn't have the data. I, I have been tracking my numbers since 1995. The data was always there. I just wasn't going back and looking at it and asking the right questions. It's so powerful and and also amazing that you've been tracking your data since 1995, <laughs> by the way. But but then and then the other fascinating thing is that people actually wanted to work with you more when you stopped doing the asset management because basically they wanted what I'm guessing is your wisdom, your expertise, your people skills, your magnetism. And it's like they wanted that as opposed to all of these technical skills. Well, I I think it's that. And I also think that they felt like, and and you have to understand that aspects of the investment management industry today are very different than they were back then. But I think the other piece there is they wanted unbiased guidance and they didn't want someone that was going in and talking about money and talking about investing, but that was really using that as a way of gathering money. It's like, no, I am not here to use this as a tool for you to then hire me to manage your money. You're paying me for me to show up in this role and this capacity. If you want somebody to manage your money, that's elsewhere. I can give you some referrals, but that's not me. And I think that they really, really appreciated that. That makes so much sense. I mean, that's been my journey too with getting financial support people. It's like, I want the unbiased advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So, so talk to us. I was going deep into your website and all the content that you put out and you use a lot of terminology. You talk about the human side of money and money being uh, much more than the numbers. So can you talk to us about what is the human side of money exactly? And how are you centering the human side of money in your work? So for me, the human side of money is looking at people's behavior, their choices, and the motivations and emotions that drive that. And a a really simple example that I love to use that I I also think is profound is if I were to give everybody that's listening a dollar and say, hey, come back to me in 30 days and tell me what did you do with that dollar? There are some in the audience who would say that they saved some or all of that dollar. There are others that would say that they invested some or all of it. There's another subgroup that would roll their eyes and put their hands on their hips and say, girl, please, you gave me a dollar. (laughs) I did with it. I spent it. (laughs) And then there'd be another group who would actually still have that dollar right in their wallet, perhaps where they put it when I, when, when I gave it to them. And here's the thing, any of those choices are valid because the person making that choice made it based upon the context and the circumstances that they they were weighing at the time that I gave it to them. That's what I mean about the human side of money. So much of the conversation around personal finance, I believe, is as if everything is one size fits all. And it doesn't take into account that, you know, person A may be weighing things that are different from person B, which then explains why they decided to save and why this other person decided to invest some or all of it. So that's one aspect of it. The other is if someone's reacting and they're thinking, this example doesn't make any darn sense because it's a dollar, my pushback would be what you do with a dollar is exactly what you will do when that dollar is a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million. You do not automatically become someone different when you have more money. So however you're treating what you have now is exactly how you will treat what you have in the future unless you intentionally change your behavior or your choices. Yes. I'm like, (laughs) yes. Thank you for saying that. And I want to make sure everybody is really getting that, that 
And you said it earlier, you were talking about how your mother was incredible at managing money. And then you were encountering these other people, maybe with gobs more money, but they're not necessarily managing it well, or they're freaking out when there's a crash. And so I want for anybody listening, I just want to pull this out is like, no matter where you are, no matter how much you're earning or not earning, no matter what socioeconomic status you were born into, that we can manage and educate ourselves and that that's actually, it sounds like one of the most important pieces. And then if we want to try to raise our earnings or all that kind of stuff, that comes next because we want the behavior to change and the relationship to change first. Is this what you're saying? I am. And I just want to also pull out and say that the education isn't just about the mechanics of it, right? So it isn't just about learning how to invest or learning what's the best place to put the money that you're setting aside for saving, but it's also learning from the standpoint of getting curious around why do you believe the things that you do about money? Where do the values that you have come from? And never from a place of judgment, but truly from a place of curiosity. And that I think that level of education is a part of what is missing and why I truly, truly dislike I normally use the word hate, but I'm trying to get away from that term. But (laughs) really just like financial literacy as a term, um, because I think, number one, the way that it is typically used, it is highly focused on the mechanics. It's less focused on the human side. A, and then B, I think it is, you know, marketed as if it is only for a certain group of people and not for another group. When I think everybody can benefit from, you know, amplifying their financial self-awareness. I couldn't agree more. And so when, when a person or a couple or something, business partners come to work with you, where do you start? Do you start with starting to unpack their values, their beliefs, everything you just said? Or do you start with the technicalities? Do you kind of do a hybrid? I start with their financial vision. Even when it's, you know, a business, we, we got to start with your the, the financial vision that you have for your personal finances. And so for me, I lean into a tool that I created over 21 years ago called the financial wheel to walk people through that. But for folks who are not interested in doing it that way, it still is, you know, a conversation around what is it that you want money to do for you? And with the wheel, I'm walking them through very specific questions with regards to savings, with regards to investing, but expanding that beyond just financial wealth, like looking at other dimensions of wealth, social wealth, time wealth, physical wealth, well-being in terms of your mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. What's the lifestyle that you want to have? And the way that I've designed the financial wheel is to really kind of highlight how, for many of us, the way that we have been conditioned to think about and to approach money is we take what we earn, And from that, we make decisions about saving, investing, and spending. And we typically make those decisions after bills have been paid. And the reality is there's nothing wrong with that approach. As a culture, we've been doing that for many generations, and some people are uber successful with it. I just happen to think there's a better way. And that better way is by first coming, you know, to what it is that you want money to do for you. What's your vision? And again, I use the tool, the financial wheel for that. And then what it does is it invites the question of if if these are all of the things that I want money to do for me, what do I need to earn to make that happen? It's a subtle difference, but it is profound in terms of the different questions that you will ask, the, the different strategies that you then may have to consider employing, uh, the different goals that you might have to claim as a way of helping to close that gap, the strategies that you'll have to put together to help do that, and then the tactics and the tools. So the tactics and the tools, actually, they come at the very, very, very bottom of the process. Um, But everything else, I think, is the more important of it. So we always start with the vision. This is so up my alley. I I love everything you're saying and I and it makes so much sense because it's like well, where do you want to be going? What do you want money to be doing for you as you're saying and then and then where are the issues or like the breakdown in the system that will prevent you from getting there or what would allow you to get there? It's it's genius and I so appreciate your 
less conventional approach. It's <laughs> very resonant with me. Thank you. And I think that part of the reason that some people have a problem with starting with the vision is because they feel like the numbers need to be accurate. And I'm like, you know what? First of all, there's just no certainty in life in general, but certainly when it comes to money. So let's prioritize clarity and curiosity over certainty. Let the numbers be what they are. Like, like give yourself permission to think big and you may only go 45 degrees from reality or you may go full 180 from reality, but just don't let it be steeped in reality and see what possibilities open up for you. Oh, love it. I love it so much. Okay. So you, in your work, I also found something, um, a video I think you made, and it was about the concept of financial blind spots. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what are financial blind spots and how do we go about catching them and changing our behavior when we do identify something that's not working for us? Like you were saying, for example, if you realize you want to be here and the amount you're earning is just not ever going to get you there. So that's one. I actually inadvertently already shared a financial blind spot when I talked about how I had the data in front of me, but I wasn't asking the right questions or paying attention to the patterns. So one blind spot would be that you think that you're doing really well with your money because you're tracking. You're like, "Ooh, I track my money. I'm good. But you're not taking the time to actually evaluate the data. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. So it's the blind spot of conflating doing an activity with getting the benefit of the activity, which for me is the equivalent of prioritizing having information over having insight. Say that again. That is profound. Um, I don't know how exactly I said it, but the whole idea is you are prioritizing information over insight and it should be the other way around. Yes. So that would be one example of a blind spot. Another example of a blind spot would be to piggyback on the example that you, you know, were directing us toward is maybe not earning as much as you want or you or you need, but not recognizing that you're the bottleneck in that, right? So maybe you're the bottleneck in it because if you have a business, you are afraid to raise your prices or you are conflating having an impact and wanting to be available to everybody, but not really paying attention to how that is putting you in a financial pickle and perhaps sabotaging the health of your own finances. Or maybe you're not realizing that every single time you don't negotiate for that raise or that bonus, or you don't put together that proposal. Like to me, those are blind spots when you're frustrated by something, but you're not doing the things that you could do to help alleviate that or to, to at least put a spotlight on why that frustration exist. Um, another blind spot would be when, and I don't know if everybody else would see it this way, but I do, is when you're so focused on getting out of debt that you don't realize how important it actually is to get out of debt and save. Like it doesn't have to be either or. It could be that it takes you a little bit longer to get out of debt it could be that you don't save as much as you'd like to save, but it's better to, in my opinion, to do both and as opposed to just putting everything toward getting out of debt. And then you have nothing on the other side from an energetic standpoint to show that something else is building up. So I don't know if people would think of those as, you know, traditional blind spots, but to me, those are examples. I love all of these examples and the, I'm, I'm so struck by this you know, prioritizing information over insight. And it feels in my work, you know, whether it's about money or anything else with the woman that I'm serving, it's it's looking at how we can get really automated in ourselves or in our relationships. And it's like, we're going through the motions and maybe we're even doing the quote unquote right thing. Right. But is the quote unquote right thing actually uh, moving the needle in terms of fulfillment, health, um, 
the result, whatever the thing is that we're after. So that's why I love that you start with the vision so that you, that's really clear. What are we after here? And then how can the data and the uh, and analysis really of that data help to get the big insights and then therefore move the needle more? Right. Yeah, totally. 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 Okay. So you brought up the concept of, you know, debt and saving. And you also, just to go back to the example you shared from 1987, watching people, some of them, you know, totally devastated on the verge of potentially ending their lives if they could, um, or, you know, like very extreme states. And you, you wrote on your website about something that you observed over the years of working in the financial industry, services industry, which is that people who build and sustain wealth, people who remain calm in the midst of financial uncertainty, have a plan, have a vision, set goals, and create a strategy. In other words, they create a plan. And so I'd just love to hear from you, and you've already spoken to some of it, but why do some people do this planning and other people not? And then if there's anyone listening who's like, I want the plan, I know I need the plan, but I just haven't gotten there. What do you recommend to them? I think one of the reasons why, you know, some of us kind of shy away from doing a plan is that we think it's really complex and it doesn't need to be. Just, just get pen and paper, draw a line, and on the left-hand side of the line is everything about where you are today, <laughs> right? How much you're earning, how much you're saving, how are you investing? What does it cost to live your lifestyle? What are you earning? On the right-hand side is where do you want to be? It, can, it, it literally can be that simple. And then therefore the gap is how do you close the gap? And so, or the question I should say is how do you close the gap? And I think part of the problem is whether the right-hand side of the line is a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, or a little bit longer, people feel like they need to go from present to future in one swell swoop. And that then can rightfully so, especially in some examples, be overwhelming. And my whole thing is, what can you do in the next 30 days? And then the next 30 days after that, and then the next 30 days. And so... To me, a part of the reason why people have a hard time planning is they want that future state to be certain. Get over that. There is no certainty. A. B, recognize and, and have some compassion and grace for yourself. You don't have to make that leap in one jump. Like you can do it step by step. And so figure out, again, what do you need to do in those short-term bites of time? That would be my recommendation for making what can seem a little bit overwhelming, be it emotionally or be it as it pertains to the, the, the scope with regards to the numbers. Um, that's one way of navigating those emotions and dealing with the, the reality. Because you know what? Sometimes you might be here on the left-hand side of the line and you are starting with zero. And that is perfectly okay. Like, do not feel bad about that but recognize to go from zero to whatever the number is over here is going to take some time. And so how do you do that incrementally? Oh, I just felt my whole system settle and relax. And I so appreciate you simplifying it for us. And also that compassion and the reassurance, like no matter where one of us is or how far, how big the gap might seem between where we are and where we want to go, that it's really about those micro changes and breaking it down step by step. I mean, you're really talking about what we would talk about in any form of behavior change or goal setting. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the goal setting piece, I would say that it's really important to, again, it's not about accuracy. I know I, I'm sounding like a broken record, but I feel like it needs to be reiterated over and over. Um, I would say that 99.9% .9 of every goal that we all have has a financial component to it. Yes. Right? Right? And you don't have to be accurate with what that component is. But here's why you need to have a ballpark or at least have a number. Financing, it comes from the money that you have right now. And so if you don't know what the number is, or if you don't guess what the number may be, 
How do you know what to do with the money that you have? How do you know how much of that should you set aside for that goal? How do you know then, you know, whether or not the money that you're setting aside, whether you should keep that liquid in a savings account, a money market or CD, or whether you should invest it, whether it's in the stock market or real estate or something else. Like you can't make those sorts of informed decisions if you don't take a step back and figure out, well, what's the financial component of a particular goal? Thank you for naming that because I think that is a way, I can just speak for myself. I don't want to generalize to all women, but there is a way for me in my development and my psychology as a woman where I've realized my hesitation sometimes around getting that specific or even getting in the ballpark because of intimidation or fear or I think sometimes we can imagine that things cost much more or out of reach or unattainable. Like it's almost safer somehow to do that than to actually be like, no, I really, really want that. Like that's a deep core desire. It's actually vulnerable to let ourselves want things. And then it's also vulnerable to get more specific around that wanting. Yeah. And here's the other thing, right? You know, I am all for uh, being open to a plethora of possibilities, right? But here's the reality. You have what you have, right? Doesn't mean you can't have more, but you have what you have. And that means then if you've got 10 goals and they are varying degrees of, you know, what it's going to cost to finance them and you have what you have, you got to make some tough choices and you got to prioritize. And maybe this year or the next two years or the next three years, these three goals are what you prioritize. And then maybe after that, you switch off to the next. And I think part of the problem is we don't want to feel like we're leaving something on the sideline when sometimes you have to leave something on the sideline. But if you have a game plan, you can then at least talk to yourself from the standpoint of, I didn't forget about you, but you're not my priority right now. (laughs) I'll (laughs) come back to you in a year (laughs) or something. But I guess my point is, and this may seem a little bit controversial, but you can't have everything right now. And so you got to prioritize what you can have. I, it doesn't feel controversial to me. You know, we'll let the <laughs> listener decide, but I appreciate it. It's relieving to me, especially in the midst of all the, you know, more modern marketing and marketing to women and the way that it is like this idea that we can have it all. And at the same time and right now, and, and it feels just human and mature and honest for you to say, like, we do have to prioritize. We do have to make hard choices. And that doesn't mean we never get to fulfill certain dreams. It's just right. a matter of timing and planning sometimes mm-hmm. and patience. <laughs> yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I want to go a little more meta with you for a moment, if that feels okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so, and I, this is in a way kind of a selfish question, but I think it, it will be interesting to the listeners as well. But as I have gotten more empowered in my financial life, I've really started to try to consume more um, financial news read more books, podcasts about finance, um, because it was, it was a big gap for me in terms of my education as a woman. And before COVID, with a lot of what I was consuming, many people in the financial industry were predicting a significant stock market crash. Um, and then, of course, we've had the last year, which has been insane in the United States, 2020, so much social, political um, health upheaval and the pandemic, obviously. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about where we stand currently with the economy? And are you anticipating a big swing, a big crash or change and enlighten us? (laughs) So one really important distinction to make, the stock market is not the economy. People conflate those two things all the time, even some folks that we see on the news, and that's a wrong thing. The stock market is how companies, you know, raise capital for the endeavors that they need to do for their respective companies, right? And that has absolutely nothing to do with the products and the goods and services that are sold, which is what the economy is. So that's the first thing. Um, 
The second thing is if you are not invested in the stock market, invest in it. <laughs> um, because while yes, at the beginning of this, you know, things were in an upheaval, but I have now seen three crashes and what I know. And so for those are like three, it would be 1987. It would be 2008. It would be what we saw initially, um, at the start of this in March, April, May, 2020, and then, of course, there were a few others in between, but they were a sm smaller on, on, on scale, so they don't get that much attention. And what I know from seeing all of those different crashes is that the people who fare the best are those who stayed invested, regardless of what the number was at the end of the closing day. So a couple of things. When you are investing, Know why you are investing. Know whether or not you are a seller or a trader, because this really came to light earlier, even this year. We're having this conversation in March 2021. If you may recall, in God, the, the months are kind of bleeding together. I guess it may, may have been the end of January, the beginning of February, where we had the whole um, Reddit and Robin Hood uh, fiasco. And know whether or not you are a trader or investor, and you can be both, but recognize whether or not you were going into, into the market to be a trader, which is more of a short-term play, or you were going into the market as an investor, which is more of a long-term play. And make sure that you have both buy and sell disciplines, regardless of what hat that you were wearing. You can, like I said, you can be both, but know which, one, which role you are in at any particular moment. So to your question of, do I foresee a crash? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows really. But what I do know is that even if we have a crash, as long as you stay invested entirely and you don't sell simply because of your emotional reaction to this, you know, the, the Dow Jones or the S&P going down an exponential number that makes us go in quote unquote bear territory. If you just stay invested, you will be okay. But you can only do that if you know that you don't need that money. So you, when you are investing, that's not money that you need in a short period of time. So the, my counsel for folks is anytime you're setting aside money, and it's for a goal or it's for a portion of a goal that you are going to need to have liquid money for in zero to five years, I don't care. Have that money in a high yield savings account, a money market account, a CD. Yes, you're losing out on the appreciation, but you have peace of mind that when you need that, it's there for you. If the goal or some portion of the goal is six years or further into the future, then you can invest in the stock market and recognize that as you get closer to the goal, you need to then scale back your exposure. And then this way, it doesn't matter if there is a crash. And as crazy as it sounds, when it is a crash, hopefully if you are in a position, that's when you buy more. So it's an opportunity. I thank you so much for that answer. I, I hope everyone listening can feel, again, the reassurance and that distinction between the stock market and the economy. It's like, I know that, but on some level, I don't know that. And so thank you for making that super clear because I feel like in many ways, there's going to be a lot of fresh blood and new creativity. And so much has changed in work and the exchange of money and goods and services as a result of this pandemic. So I'm actually feeling kind of hopeful, like that there's going to be a different vibe and new light at, at the end of this tunnel. Um, but then it's been sort of hovering over me, this concept of a big crash. So I love all those points you made. And, you know, your, your point about what could be on the other end of it is so on point because if we look at um, the crash of 2008, look at all of the fintech companies that have emerged, Robinhood being one of them since then. And I've, I have the position of, again, having been on Wall Street since 1986, when none of those things were around, right? When your only option was, I think, money or Quicken, which I still use Quicken. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I, I am, I have been a Mac person for a really long time, but I have a PC and it's purely dedicated for my Quicken desktop software. Because as I said, I've been tracking since 1995 and the thought of trying to convert that to something else and potentially losing data just scares the life out of me. So I do not do it. Anyway, that's a sidetrack. But my point being, for many years, those were your only two options. And now look at the fact that you can track your money, you can, you know, save, you know, what's the difference between what you just spent and the dollar, the fact that you can buy fractional shares, you know, and, and do things like, I don't know, buy a share for $10, you know, or, or buy, you can invest $10 into a share that's maybe $100 is, I guess, a better way of saying it. None of that really existed prior to 2008. And so all of that innovation came about because of the reactions of 2008 and because people were like, well, you know, we need to put more power in the hands of people as opposed to the big banks and the big institutions. And so now we're all walking around with all of our financial life on a phone. So who knows what will come out of this? <laughs> totally. But it really, it really feels like the barrier to entry has gotten so much lower, which I'm thrilled about because I feel like for those of us who have been historically oppressed by these systems or kept out of the systems, like it just feels so much more accessible than it ever has before. Yeah, I I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that, you know, uh, there are some that would refer to it as the democratization of capital markets. And so definitely my only concern, though, especially with like examples of the Robin Hood, is that people conflate their behavior and they think that they are investors when they're actually behaving like traders. Yes. Okay. So that is, and that's such a critical point. I love that you made that point before and now again, that it's like really being clear about what you're doing and why, and then acting accordingly as right. opposed to being confused about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So at this stage of the game, do you manage your own um, invested assets or do you hire somebody else? Because I know that's a big question that I have and a lot of women have is like, you know, can I manage my investments myself or is it actually better to hire a professional? And you have the advantage of having been in this field for so long. I use a robo advisor. I don't. So um, my my decision was to make the decision to give it to a robo advisor. So I use Betterment. Okay, awesome. I've heard great things about Betterment. Mm -hmm. And I do have one stock. So I will say, because I, I always tease about how we always talk about, you know, the stocks that we have that do really well, but we don't talk about the stocks we have that don't do well. So here is me saying that, yes, I'm one of those people who have, have a stock that has, uh, it took a beating in 2008 and has never returned. And I still have it. And that's a darn shame. <laughs> but now I can't even get into the account to sell it. So that's another issue. <laughs> um, so here's my thing, you know, to do it yourself or to hire someone else. I think that if you really, really don't know what you're doing, definitely hire someone else, but then invest the time to educate yourself so that you can have more substantive conversations with whomever you've hired to manage your money so that you have an understanding of why they're doing what it is that they're doing. If you're going to uh, manage your own money and you're going to select stocks, I always say to folks, use the stocks of the products and services that you use because it's like recycling. So if you use a lot of products from say Procter & Gamble, well then make sure you have Procter & Gamble. If you drink a lot of things or eat a lot of food from you know, Coca-Cola or Pepsi, then make sure you have that stock because again, it's recycling. Most people though, if, if depending upon where they work and how they work, if they have a 401k plan through their job, they are investing in the stock market. And so my thing I would say there is if you're going to also invest externally from that, then make sure you understand how your 401k or 403b is being invested so that you're not duplicating that externally. 
because diversification is not a numbers game from the standpoint of if you've got, you know, four different mutual funds, that doesn't necessarily mean you're diversified if all four of those mutual funds are investing in the exact same way. So you may have to do a little bit of research. So that doesn't really answer your question other than to say, if you are going to hire someone, make sure you understand their investment style, make sure that fits with you, make sure you understand how they're going to get paid, make sure that fits with you. If you are going to do it yourself, first confine what it is you purchase to those things that you utilize, because that'll make doing the research a little bit easier. And um, just like when we first started talking, you're like, where do people start? And I said, you start with your vision. When it comes to investing, a part of that vision is you know, your allocation. So we talk about, you know, how much of your portfolio should be in stocks and how much of it should be in bonds and then breaking it down even further. That diversification matters because that is the piece that makes the most impact or has the most impact on the performance of your portfolio. The truth of the matter is, for the most part, whether you have Coke or Pepsi or Procter & Gamble versus Kimberly Clark, I think that's a different P&G company, um, doesn't make a difference for the most part. So, you know, yeah. It's so helpful. I'm hearing there are a lot of options and there's no right or wrong, but it's really important that we're awake and aware. Um, So with the robo-advisor, does does a robo-advisor company get a percentage, basically, of the assets it's managing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like an asset manager. So, But it's a a smaller amount because Mm -hmm. it's just a smaller amount. Um, But I get to choose, I get to choose what I want my allocation to be. So Mm -hmm. it's not like I just gave them money and like said, hello, do whatever you want. Um, It's do whatever you want, but this is the portfolio allocation that I want. And, you know, they automatically rebalance. So that's the other thing too. Like if you're going to invest on your own, make sure that not only do you have some principles around what will be the reasons you buy? What will be the reasons that you sell? But make sure you also have as a part of that process, your, you know, you're going to review it on a quarterly basis. And when it gets, because the market moves, right? It's, it's not a static thing. So because it's moving, what are you going to do on a quarterly basis to get it back in alignment with what you said you wanted your original allocation to be? So you got to be willing to do the work. And I find that a lot of people say they are, but then they don't really want to. Totally. And then then that might be a good case for hiring someone or using a robo-advisor with those caveats of being in alignment with the advisor, understanding how they're getting paid and similarly with the robo. Yeah. So, okay. Amazing. So, so informative. Okay. Do you have any favorite books, podcasts, or just general resources that you would encourage women to check out if they're wanting to go deeper around all this? Deeper around investing, deeper around money, deeper around what? I would say money in general and investing, because I think that is my experience working with my clients. I think investing is usually the place where women tend to feel least empowered. Like at this point, a lot of women are much more empowered around earning, not all of us, and saving and sometimes and management. Uh, but I think the investing is where I see a lot of eyes start to gl- glaze over. Um, that used to be me historically too. So maybe both. So one of the things I want to say about investing is that always remember that when you are investing, you are investing in companies. So I would think that one of the best things to do is to read magazines that focus on companies or read newspapers that focus on companies, or listen to podcasts that focus on companies. Because it's all about how is this company, um, you know, doing R&D for a particular product or service? How are they delivering that product or service? How are they um, interacting with their customer base? Like, those are the kinds of things that you want to know a little bit more about when it comes to investing, because that's what you are investing in. You are investing in that company doing its job in that way. And the more you understand how they go about making money, the better able you'll be able to see if that company is in alignment with you around the kinds of companies 
that you want to affiliate yourself with. So on the investing side, I would say focus on podcasts, focus on magazines, um, focus on newspapers um, and books that talk about the companies and less about a particular investing doctrine. So if people are like, well, I still don't know what to do. Uh, Kiplinger's is a really great um, magazine for that. Oh, Make Me Smart. The folks that do Marketplace um, on NPR is a really good podcast. So that's a magazine. That's a podcast. Um, Investors Business Daily would be a good uh, like newspaper to, to read on a regular basis. So those would be my three suggestions in that regard. When it comes to money in general, I don't know if I have any specific books or podcasts or magazines to suggest. I think my suggestion would be more along the lines of whatever you are listening to or reading, ask the question of where do you notice money playing a role? And how is that making you feel? Because um, money impacts absolutely every single area of our lives. And I think a part of the exercise of listening and reading and watching and paying attention to where you notice the impact of money will give you a great deal of insight as to what you are reacting to, why you are reacting in that particular way, and then what might you want to do next. I love that. Jaquette, this has been so inspiring, so fun, and so educational. I just can't thank you enough. And I'm wondering if folks want to get a hold of you to maybe have you speak at their event or to work with you more privately, how can they find you? My website is jaquettetimmons.com. And if you want to do the financial wheel exercise, it is free. You can go to jaquettetimmons.com forward slash wheel. And I am always hanging out on Instagram. (laughs) So hang out with me on Instagram. Come say hello. (laughs) I'm going to now find you over there. I hadn't gone into your Instagram, but... (laughs) Yeah. Um, So those would be all of the ways in which to connect with me and continue the conversation. And yeah, definitely. And if you want to explore working together, that would be fantastic as well. Oh, okay. Awesome. I'll make sure to have all those links in the show notes below this episode too, so people can find it easily. And uh, I've been asking this a lot this month and um, I am wondering if you would be willing to celebrate something with us that you are proud of about your more recent money life? Oh my God. Yeah. So I am extremely grateful that 2020 ended up the way that it did. And it was one of my absolute best years. And if you had told me that that would have been a possibility in March of 22, I don't know if I would have believed you. So I'm just extremely grateful that uh, it ended on the note that it did because, you know, as I mentioned before, my business is split between being a for hire speaker, working one-on-one with uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners, coaching, and then hosting events. Well, the speaking and the hosting of the events all happened in person. Wow. And and to give people a little bit of context as to why that was such an exhale moment for me is now granted 2020 wasn't um, at this particular scale, but this can give people an example of my speaking schedule in the past. So in 2018, in September of 2018, I was on the road every single week through the first week in December. I had 10 days off and those 10 days were not consecutive. So that gives you a sense of my travel schedule and my speaking schedule. And so, like I said, wow, 20 wasn't there yet, but when it happened, when we shut down in New York on the 12th, I was supposed to be leaving on the 15th for a speaking engagement. And it was like, 
holy crap, what is going to happen? So the fact that um, not much really had to change in my business, and yet I had the year that I had, I'm just a so incredibly grateful. And I'm also just really proud of myself for being open and being willing to experiment on a dime so that that could be possible. Thank you so much for sharing that and congratulations. That's a, a huge accomplishment and yeah, and beautiful role modeling, like the, the ability and willingness to adapt and adjust to change. Uh, that's just super inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So if I handed you a microphone and I told you that every single woman across the world could not only hear, but actually really deeply receive your message to her, what would you most want her to know? You don't manage money. You manage your choices around money. And the reason that that is important is because your relationship with money is one of the longest relationships that you will have. And if you think about any of the relationships that are of importance to you, of significance to you, and that have been around for a really long time, those relationships have evolved and they ebb and flow. And the same is true when it comes to your money. So don't expect it to be static. Don't expect to have the same answer to a question that you should be asking all the time, which is what should I do with my money? But recognize that as that relationship evolves, as you are hopefully finding new answers to that question, the thing that will give you hopefully some comfort is remembering that you don't manage money, but you manage your choices. And no matter what the circumstances, you can always find something that will allow you to operate from your power of choice. Jaquette, thank you so much for being here and for everything that you've given and shared. Thank you so much for having me. I truly enjoyed our conversation. I did as well. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.